And the Lord Jesus is angry because these men will not glorify God. God demands reverence. Really, all of creation glorifies God. The Bible says the trees glorify Him, the birds glorify Him. The sun, the moon, and the stars give Him glory. In fact, there are only two recorded rebels in all of the Bible who don't give Him glory, fallen angels, and very often fallen man. And so if we don't glorify the Lord, we will someday meet the Lord in His wrath, the kind of wrath you see here, but an eternal wrath that Jesus someday will bring upon the lost. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, Cleansing the Temple. As we continue our study in the Gospel of John, we're going to look at Jesus in the temple as he deals with the money changers. Pastor Carl will examine the motives of the money changers who came to make a buck rather than honor God with their worship as they ought to have done. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 2. Now, we have seen that there's a major theme that runs all the way through this whole book, and it's the same theme, and you will find it in virtually every chapter. He wants to present Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. He wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is not just a good teacher because someone who is a good teacher doesn't claim, just a good teacher doesn't claim to be God. He wants us to know that Jesus Christ is not just a good example because presumably good examples don't hang around with sinners and drunks and tax collectors. He wants us to understand that Jesus is not some kind of religious nut because crazy people don't speak with the cogency that he spoke with, nor display the kind of love that he exhibited. He wants us to realize that Jesus is not a religious phony, because religious phonies don't rise from the dead. He wants to hammer home the simple truth that Christ is not a ghost, because you don't nail ghosts to a cross and shed blood. He's not a myth, because myths don't split time down the history. He is God in a human body. Now, we've already seen John's testimony in the prologue affirming that Jesus is Lord. We've looked at the testimony of John the Baptist, of Andrew, of Philip, and Nathaniel, all saying the same thing. We saw it last time in the first half of this chapter when Jesus performs his very first miracle of turning the water into wine because only God can create, and he creates wine. And so this morning, in this second half of chapter 2, we will find the same affirmation for us to see Christ for all that he is, to present him accurately, that we might fall down before him and worship him. Let's follow along in our text this morning, John 2, beginning now in verse 12. After this, he, Christ, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed a few days, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changes seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changes, changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you do to show us, seeing that you do these things? 
Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what that he said and they believed the scripture in the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, as you can see from your note-taking outline, we've divided this section into the, following the three vignettes that John gives us in these verses. In verses um, 13 through 16, we find the record of Jesus going to the temple and cleaning house. We've called that section Jesus and the building. When we come to verses 17 to 22, we find, this, uh, as a result of that cleansing, the questioning that the Jews bring upon the Son of God. We're calling this section Jesus and his body. And then in verses 23 through 25, we find Christ's response to those who allegedly profess faith in him. We're calling this Jesus and the believer. So let's begin by considering Jesus and the building. Look, if you will, now in verse 12. After this, that is after the wedding there in Cana of Galilee, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. Now this verse is going to give us the transition from Cana down to Jerusalem. And if you were to look on a map, you'd discover that Capernaum is about 16 miles northeast of Cana. Yet the text says he went down, um, which is interesting because as we discovered last time, up and down in the Bible when used in reference to direction is not like north and south, but it's used in reference to topography, up in altitude or down in altitude. And so uh, uh, Capernaum was lower than Cana. It was at sea level there in the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that his mother, the disciples, those whom he called in chapter 1, his brothers, which would be the half-brothers of Christ, the children of Mary and Joseph, of course, all who are younger than he, uh, they went down there to Capernaum. And this is an important note. It's a transition that helps us to see not just the movement in this particular time frame in Christ's life, but John is going to show us that Capernaum becomes really the headquarters from which the Lord Jesus operates. As you look in the parallel gospel and Luke's gospel, you discover that it was during this time frame that the Lord Jesus went into Nazareth. Nazareth, if you remember, was his hometown. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. There in Nazareth, he went in and as the rabbi, they asked him to open the scroll. He opened it, he read it. And the text says in 422 of Luke, and all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? But then when he began to speak of their sin, they went from praise to incredible anger. They drug him to the edge of the city, if you remember. They wanted to throw him right over the cliff and kill him. But then he exhibited his power in a moment, and he walked right through the multitude, and he was done with Nazareth. And now Capernaum becomes headquarters for the next three years. Look at verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, on the map, it looks like you're going about 100 miles south, 
but you're going up, and that Jerusalem's built up on a mountain right there next to the Mount of Olives. And we find in these verses not the gentle, mild, meek Jesus that so many people associate with his person. In fact, we find the exact opposite. One who is totally intolerant of sin, intolerant of those who would show irreverence towards God and hypocrisy before men. The Lord Jesus has a passion for the souls of men. For the Son of Man has come to save and to seek that which is lost. And he hates hypocrisy and stumbling blocks that will prevent people from finding salvation in him. And so he is going to have anger in this passage. Not all anger is sin. The Bible says, sin, be angry, but sin not. Some anger, especially the anger of God, is always righteous anger. And the Lord Jesus is angry because these men will not glorify God. God demands reverence. Really, all of creation glorifies God. The Bible says the trees glorify Him, the birds glorify Him. The sun, the moon, and the stars give Him glory. In fact, there are only two recorded rebels in all of the Bible who don't give Him glory, fallen angels and very often fallen man. And so if we don't glorify the Lord, we will someday meet the Lord in His wrath, the kind of wrath you see here, but an eternal wrath that Jesus someday will bring upon the lost. Now, the Lord's here not to win a popularity contest. If He were just trying to make friends and influence people, never would have done what He had done here. No, He deals directly with sin. And the text says, And the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, every Jewish male, 12 years of age and up, were required three times a year to go to Jerusalem for three feasts. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of uh, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Concerning Passover, the law said in Deuteronomy, you are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns which the Lord your God has given you. But at the place, that is Jerusalem, where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. So we went up to Jerusalem, and it's estimated by the historians of the day that somewhere between two and two and a half million people a year would make this pilgrimage. Now, for those of you who are new to the Bible, Passover comes from the Old Testament. You first read of it in the book of Exodus. God delivered his children out of bondage who had been down there in Egypt for 400 years with 10 great mighty plagues. And the last plague that finally turned the heart of Pharaoh was when God sent the angel of destruction through the town. And those who did not have the blood applied to the doorpost and the lintel Brought, God brought judgment on those homes, and the firstborn died. But all those who had the blood applied, God passed over. And of course, it's a picture. That lamb, that spotless lamb that they would use that day in which to apply the blood, it was a symbol of the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And when by faith you come to Christ and it's applied to your heart, God will pass over you in judgment. But interestingly, this is not called the Lord's Passover, as it is in Exodus and Deuteronomy, but here it's called the Passover of the Jews. By the time John writes, and really by the time Christ comes to the temple at this time in his public ministry, the Passover was really no longer God's Passover, but theirs. Later, he's not going to call this my house, as he does in the first cleansing. He's ultimately going to say it's your temple, because God doesn't have anything to do with it. God wasn't in their Passover anymore. Many were just going through religious hoops, much like what we do in many churches today. 
People get baptized, they join churches, they get confirmed, they go through religious ceremony, not because God is necessarily in it, but because it's the religious thing to do. So Jesus, all of his life, had gone to the temple to celebrate Passover. And of course, every Jew needed a Passover lamb, and so that's the occasion for what happens here. Look at verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changes money changers seated. It's a pretty sick situation here because what these people are doing are presenting an obstacle to people's faith. It reminds me of a lady's testimony whom I heard some time ago. As a young woman, she was trying to find true meaning to life and she couldn't seem to find it in the institutional church that she had grown up in. She uh, came to grips that there was falsity in this church when one day she was required to pay a fee to have a ceremony said in honor of her dead mother that somehow that mother might sooner go to heaven than later. So she went and joined the Jehovah's Witness. She went through their whole process, joined by baptism. But after a period of time, she saw that their lifestyle bore little resemblance to their claims. Later, she described how she went and joined the Mormon church. And she was there for a number of years until she saw how selective and manipulative they were with the use of the Bible. So she joined the Church of Scientology. She paid all the initiation fees, but she came out empty and dry and realized it was an organization built on greed whose whose founder died with some $8 million in the bank. Finally, she went home to where she was raised, and there she met her younger brother, whom she had not seen in years, and she described how he had found faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that there are no fees, no ceremonies to go through, that one must come to his cross and receive his forgiveness. You know, as I heard her testimony, there was something in me that just kind of came up in my heart. I suppose maybe just a tiny, tiny little bit. I sensed the indignation that the Lord Jesus felt when these, in his day, put obstacles to faith before his salvation. Now, don't confuse this event with what takes place in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you read the second cleansing of the temple. It doesn't happen at the start of Christ's ministry, but the end of this ministry. This takes place right at the beginning when he's relatively unknown. The second cleansing takes place at the end of his ministry when everybody knows him. And as you read the two accounts carefully, while there are certainly parallels because the same sin was evident, there are actually some distinct differences as well. And so, of course, John's writing with a different perspective in mind. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as you know, spend most of their time with Jesus' ministry in Galilee, whereas John's gospel is focused in Jerusalem. In fact, if all you had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would have thought that Jesus virtually never went to Jerusalem apart from that time when he was 12 years old. You would have thought he never went there until the end of his life uh, just before he was crucified. But John repeatedly shows us of Christ's visits to Jerusalem. We'll see it in chapter 5. We'll see a second, a third visit in chapter 7, a fourth visit in chapter 10, and then a fifth visit all the way recorded through chapters 12 through 20. But we shouldn't be surprised, really, because Jerusalem was the religious capital of Judaism. And the Lord, the proprietor of the temple, is coming to see whether or not men are really hearing of the forgiveness of God and whether or not people are truly worshiping God. And of course they were not, 
because these leaders did not have a true concern for the spiritual welfare of the people. And so what was it that provoked the Lord to such indignation? What made him so upset? If we can learn what made him so upset, we can make application in our day. Two things in particular are highlighted in these verses. First, I find that what was wrong at the temple was the fact that they were obscuring the way to God. They were obscuring the way to God. Now, get a feel for someone visiting the temple at this time in human history. I mean, the place was a zoo, literally. Animals everywhere. It was a busy marketplace, so there was little peace, little opportunity to reflect upon God about the Passover and to really worship Him. Prayer had been banished to the sidelines. Uh, Competing voices for the business of the folks was everywhere. Now, I know this cleansing is different, But as you study both accounts, there are similarities. Same problem is going on. And so we learn in the second cleansing of the temple that people really couldn't even pray there. Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. If you had asked someone maybe to pray with you that you might make your peace with God, they would have said, oh, very well, get in line over there, get your money ready. And there was so much noise. It's a far cry from what we studied a few years ago in the book of Nehemiah, where there at the temple, the people came, they assembled and they heard the teaching of God's word. They prayed, they wept. They knew the joy of the Lord is their strength. I I tried to put this scene and tried to think, well, what maybe would be a modern parallel today? And the only thing I could think of was maybe the floor of the New York Stock Exchange blended with Faneuil Hall there in Boston, the, the farmer's market. I mean, this was just chaotic. You couldn't come and worship God. You couldn't come and pray here. The noise is deafening. And so some would say, I suppose, where is God in all of this? In many respects, time really hasn't changed much. People today have many obstacles to God. They have their rules. They have their do's and don'ts, their baptisms, their confirmations, their robes, their smokes, their bells, their ashes, and a host of other things. One church where the pastor was waxing on and on and on, putting everyone to sleep, a little girl rather impatient, pulled on her mother's sleeve and said, Mommy, just pay the man so we can go home. (laughs) And I suppose maybe that's how some of these worshipers felt. Let's just get it done. Let's just get our obligation over with. A lot of people go to church with that feeling. They're not really being ministered from the Word of God, and they're just watching the clock, can't wait to get out the door and say, I've done my responsibility. So Jesus comes into the temple, he surveys the situation, and in a moment's time, he sees the corruption and the spiritual neglect of the people. And this is not the complaint of some backwoods prophet. This is the Lord God, this is the Messiah. And so he's enraged because these are not leaders who are helping people find God, but obscuring the way to him. Instead of solemn dignity that you would expect in a place like this, it's noisy. It's a marketplace. It's chaotic. Secondly, I want you to see not only were they obscuring the way to God, but they were exploiting the way to God. We read here in verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated. He found there in the temple, undoubtedly the outermost court, the court of the Gentiles. He found those 
who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. And that was to be used, of course, in the sacrificial worship of the temple. And there were also the money changers. Now, the money changers were necessary in order to pay the temple tax that every Jew over the age of uh, 20 was expected to pay. But you see, they couldn't accept just any kind of currency. These money changers had considered the other currencies of the world as unclean because the Roman currencies had the effigy of Caesar on it, and so they viewed it as the imprint of paganism. So you had to use Jewish coinage. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. The problem was that these folks were ripping people off. Have you ever been in a foreign country where you feel like, man, we got the worst exchange rate in this place. They took us for a ride, but you just kind of had no choice. Well, that's what was happening here. This was a den of robbers, Matthew will write. They were ripping folks off when the Roman general Crassus in 54 B.C., conquered Jerusalem. He came into the temple and he found millions and millions and millions of dollars in today's terms. In addition, there was the seller of the animals for the sacrifices. Remember, Passover required that every devout family offer a lamb, an unblemished lamb. Typically, in the past, people would have bought these lambs outside in the marketplace, but now it had moved into the court of the Gentiles. And had you bought one out in the marketplace and brought it into the court, the priest would have found something wrong with it. No, you can't buy this one. So they kind of forced the people to buy the lambs there in the court. Josephus tells us that they are charging about six times the current rate that they are charging out in the community. And so they had a monopoly going on. It reminded me when we came back on our way home from Ukraine and had to stop over for a night in Paris. In Paris, And I mean, prices in that city were so sky high. But I mean, if you wanted to eat, you had no choice. You had to pay it. I'm sure that's what these people felt like. It's sky high, the prices. But they had to buy the animal to do that which God prescribed. By the way, things haven't changed all that much, I suppose. People today are still being exploited for God. About five years ago, someone put in our yard a, uh, a satellite dish for what they call the Angel Network, exclusively for Christian broadcasting. We had it for about six months, and I came home one night, about uh, 10 o'clock at night from work, and there I turned it on, and there was this woman preaching, she was a pastor of a church, which should put a red flag up in your mind. Uh, women are equal as men are. We have the same spiritual status before the Lord, but we have different roles. There are some things only men can do in the church. Some things only women can do in the church. Women have a high and holy calling, but it's different from men. And the Bible is explicitly clear. It's not to be a pastor. But nonetheless, um, this woman... Like, well, let me just say, this network, I should say, really doesn't distinguish much. (laughs) I mean, I got an education in those six months. Kind of like some of the Christian bookstores you go into. I mean, you see an array of material. Some that say one thing, some that say the exact opposite. But they'll espouse both books. Why? Because whatever sells. Whatever is profitable. I've been using the same distributor to buy my books since the early 80s. And I called Spring Arbor one day and I said, why on earth are you carrying some of this stuff teaching us to worship Mary? 
That's what the book was on, how to worship Mary. Oh, but you see, I was the judgmental one. You see, if you take a stance today, you're not a unifier. You're judgmental. You're divisive. But you see, they put out there what sells, what people have an appetite for. doesn't matter if it's theologically correct. So here's this woman, and she goes into a fund appeal. I thought, oh, I'll go up, and I changed and took my shower, put my pajamas on, got my books all ready for the next day, and came down. My wife served me dinner, and she's still doing the fund appeal. And I'm thinking 20 minutes later, what do some non-Christians think of this? I know ministries need money to operate, but when I was doing our course on the theology of money, someone in this church gave me an article from Christianity Today on this very woman. Five years later, CT is noting the fact that she has her 10,000 square foot home, her eight heated and air conditioned car garage, her $10 million jet, her $4.5 million house, and on and on and on the list went. And all this money that was supposed to be used for orphans was going somewhere else. We tried to get a lady to come and speak at this women's conference. Some of you ladies missed a choice conference. You should have been here. Shame on you, some of you ladies who could have been here. Anyway, we tried to get this lady, and we spoke with her agent. Her agent says, well, she'll come, but she has to fly first class. Um, she needs at least two nights accommodation in the hotel, though she's just going to speak on one day for one hour. And we'll give you the cut rate since you're the chur a church for 6000 bucks. Oh, thank you. God bless you. <laughs> one guy we thought about bringing here to speak gets 30 grand to speak for one hour. He would give us 15000 if we would take him. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul charging that kind of money? And I imagine what the non-Christian world thinks. Because they mix us all together. I know how the Lord felt. Verse 15, he made a scourge of cords. Drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. Now, evidently, there would have been a lot of ropes laying around from the various animals, and he put some of them together and made them into a whip. And the Bible says he drove them all out of the temple. Who's them all? Pantas. It's a reference to the men. He didn't use this whip simply on the backs of sheep and oxen. He used it on the back of men. The text says he drove them all out with the sheep and the oxen. Suddenly, people are fleeing everywhere. Tables are dumped over. Money's rolling everywhere. One man cleaned the whole thing. He's no wimpy man. He's not the pic like the pictures of so many artists where he's an anemic, little, timid, shriveled up wimp. Jesus, gentle, mild, and meek, like the hymn says, that's the farthest thing from the truth as it relates to this particular passage of Scripture. I don't like those pictures that make him so weak because it's not really a picture of the Savior. He was a man's man. You don't take a scourge like this and drive everyone out of the temple and not be some kind of a man. The son was clearing the father's house with a lash. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. 
and requesting program John 006. You can also support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.